0: Nimotasa bhukoa tu arahato sama sambhutasa Nimotasa bhukoa tu arahato sama sambhutasa Nimotasa bhukoa tu arahato sama sambhutasa Putang damang sankang I'd like to say thank you to uh, everybody who sent me birthday cards. Uh, many of you sent very nice cards, and I'm grateful for that. I'm a great fan of of uh, the tradition of sending birthday cards and New Year's greeting cards and so on. I, it feels like a kind of reaffirmation of communion and so to speak and a sense of uh, friendship and and appreciation and support and and companionship counts for a lot in practice and i know personally for me the uh, one of the things that was very attractive about um, monastic life was like Conscious or intentional spiritual community, and and then of course we all know what the, the Buddha had to say about these things and how how important it is uh, in practice. So occasions like birthdays or New Year's greetings and so uh, its just an excuse I find to say something nice to somebody, and uh, so I appreciate that. And, uh, some very nice cards, one of my favorite cards said um, are you aware that as you grow older, you become a screaming boar <laughs> and... <laughs> now as, uh, it was uh, I'm sure it was tongue in cheek and the person who sent it but also i have enjoyed having an ongoing uh, contemplation that i have around boredom uh, reactivated uh, for many many years i've contemplated boredom mm. and it's a very rich investigation mm. if we're not if we can't be consciously bored or mindfully bored well boredom can be a real uh, like an enemy you know. people can feel threatened uh, pending boredom and I, I think that's probably what a lot of the consumer society feeds on, certainly with the television culture, that's what it, it feeds on, the, the idea of being addicted to uh, something interesting and yet it's been my experience that as this person in the card observed that as the years have gone by, I have become much more boring i'm not uh, i 'm not interesting in the way that I used to be. You know, people comment on it and not just in that card you know, Somebody else I just came back from the Leeds Buddhist group, and somebody there was I spent Saturday morning with them and they they mentioned how how um, said you, the good thing about you is that i don 't have to take you to the pub and they uh, commenting on how since they stopped drinking that their circle of friends had had shrunk considerably. If you don't drink then uh, you're considered as uh, being boring. So one of the things I like to ponder on when thinking about boredom is what defines whether somebody's boring or not? Who... When the Buddha talked about, you know, in the, uh, when the Buddha gave the discourse to to the uh, the Bhikkhuni, uh, Mahapajapati, who asked for a summary of the teachings, and and he he laid out this presented this very clear uh, list of things and said, if your practice or your effort increases in uh, dispassion, then it accords with my teaching. If it increases in passion, then it doesn't accord with my teaching. If it increases in detachment, then it accords with my teaching. If it increases in attachment, it doesn't accord with my teaching. So I went through this list of eight things, and and dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude is the last one. And that's very interesting. If your practice is taking you to... uh, Increased solitude, then it accords with my teaching. If your practice is actually taking you towards being more dependent upon social stimulus, then it doesn't accord with my teaching. So, there are those who find um, the company of those who practice, you know, presumably I'm referring to everybody here presumably everybody here uh, has this experience that that the more we practice the less we are inclined to to being sociable you know? I mean, we may be more able to be sociable if we need to be and that 's also my experience that if I need to be sociable and and so on that i 'm more able to do it, but the inclination towards that is uh, diminishing mm. And so from a worldly perspective, from the perspective of those who are still dependent upon excitement and and stimulus of the senses, then yes, it's true, we're becoming boring. It does make you more boring. But from the perspective of those who practice, then no, that's not the case at all. It's quite the opposite. It makes you more interesting. Yeah. People who don't need to always, like if you're having a conversation to be able to sit with somebody and there can be space in the conversation, space for some thinking, space for some waiting or pondering instead of always moving on to the next thing. Or an environment, living in an environment. And When I was young, <laughs> I can remember what, how I used to decorate the house that I lived in, the last house I had in New Zealand, we had what we called the Red Room. And uh, I guess it's obvious why it was called the Red Room. All the walls were painted. It was called Guardsman Red, actually, according to the paint book, I remember. It was kind of blood red. this rich, rich red. All the walls were painted this colour. And then all these different levels in the room. You walk in under a level above you and there's these other levels. and All the levels were covered in black upholstery and then there was a beautiful exposed fireplace, and then there was a, a hole in the wall which opened up into the kitchen where Sally used to push through freshly baked muffins, and we had a seriously good sound system in there which we used to listen to Emerson Lake and Palmer and such things. And you get the picture, and that was that was how basically one accessed uh, good feeling in those days. And it's not that I have a problem with red rooms or good sound systems or or freshly made muffins. I have a problem with those things, but the idea of of always always wanting that kind of excitement, I find these days is unattractive. And as you might have gathered, I'm rather partial to white these days. You go down to Kusler House and, uh, you yeah, know. Well, when we were doing this room here, the uh, the friend who was very generously making this carpet really lent on me big time because he wanted to have the Dhammachaka in bright yellow with red and and green and blue kind of coming out of all the primary colours, and I had to really stick to my guns and insist that it should look like moss and the moss in the garden and. And as I say, it's not because I have a problem with uh, primary colours or or, um, stimulating music or whatever, but that uh, as the years go by, these things are just less attractive. um, And the same with uh, having views and opinions about things. Somebody was mentioning to me recently how they found living with their young daughter very difficult because she would be mouthing off in a nasty way about something and trying to wind her mother up. And and if her mother was just cool, and uh, as she was saying, it was difficult, that if she didn't get wound up and didn't get engaged in a passionate debate about something or, or get indignant or get angry, then the daughter was dismissing her as being weak and uninteresting and presumably boring. And so you know, it does have to i think it's as worth thinking about you know um, this dynamic and 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 the uh what it is we're feeding on like last week we we spoke about crisis and and uh, and the crisis addiction that that is so prevalent in the world that if there isn't anything happening, then people will start worrying about something to create a crisis and invent a crisis because the, there is one mind state or one quality of consciousness that just gets off on a crisis. You know, taking a position for something or against something and feeds and on the energy that gets stimulated by that. But as we practice and we let go you, know, you see how kind of irritating it is really for the mind to always be stimulated. You know, even even the beautiful ideas that one has, the beautiful lofty thoughts that one can have, or the beautiful visualizations or the beautiful memories, that if you really keep practicing, then after a while it becomes tedious. It's just unattractive. It's not because one thinks we shouldn't be having thoughts or shouldn't be entertaining fantasies. or It's just that, if you keep practicing, you just say well it 's just tiresome it 's just unattractive, so naturally, if we 're really practicing properly and letting go, then naturally the mind inclines towards stillness and letting go of all the content of the mind it 's kind of like it 's a beckoning, the heart is beckoning for stillness and and there 's an energy in that when we find that stillness, mm. okay, so the momentum of the conditioning can put up a bit of a fight, and it wants something to feed on it. But if we heed that beckoning of the heart to move towards stillness and silence and, and we make the effort that we need to make to let go of the activity, then it feels very, very natural. It feels very natural to not have an opinion. Even about the stillness. You, know, you can go to stillness and silence and in the beginning when you start to experience a little stillness and silence, you, then you come with an opinion about it. Oh, I'm doing very well. This is good. Practice is going, progressing. But after a while, even... Even having an opinion about whether practice is progressing is rather unattractive. It's kind of an irritation to have an opinion about anything, and we start to get a feeling for what the Buddha was saying, like with, with detachment. How detachment is the way. Attachment is not because attachment is energy extravagant and irritating. You know. Even attachment to beauty, attachment to good, attachment to being right. You. Know, you know faced with some moral quandary somebody throws up a question or there's a, you're faced with a situation and, and you consider it and you come up with what you believe is a morally responsible a, a right solution a right answer to it and you're sitting in stillness and your mind is going on about being right all the time it's not peaceful is it? So even attaching to being right is not attractive and so if we're practicing properly then even that we let go of now, this is, it does take contemplation because you know, there can be the idea that letting go of attachments is a good thing to do. And this is what the Buddha was talking about. But then, if we attach the idea of letting go of attachments, we basically, we miss the point and we're trying too hard and we're trying to not be attached. Yeah. While we, the same as trying to not be, uh, trying to be dispassionate with the idea that, not being attached or the idea of being dispassionate is good, this is Dhamma. And so we try to do these things. But holding on to the idea of being dispassionate and being dispassionate are very different. In the beginning we might use the idea as a kind of like a, a tool or a lever, that's something that helps us to move out of being indignant and, and passionate and move towards dispassion. But we need to every exercise in constant mindfulness to see what to feel, to investigate, to recognise directly for ourselves you know, what is the experience of being impassioned or being dispassionate you know, as a whole body mind experience. You know, it's not just the idea of being uh, dispassionate. You know. You know, been in touch with various people lately who have. Uh, been dealing with uh, quite a lot of disappointment. There's one person who's who's uh, had to deal with a, a monk who is not keeping his rules as he should be and causing a lot of harm and a lot of pain. And so has brought about a lot of disappointment. And so, but if you hear the teachings, the Buddhist is about being dispassionate, being detached, and you think, well, you know, I shouldn't be attached to my teacher or I shouldn't be. Yeah. I shouldn't. I should have equanimity, or I shouldn't be judgmental you know, of this behaviour. And so you're trying to not be judgmental and trying to be dispassionate. When in fact, what's going on is there's a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment, maybe rage, passionate rage. But the Buddha said, be dispassionate. Yeah. Strong judgment of how wrong this behaviour is. But the Buddha said, be detached. So it's important that we uh, consider, as a whole body-mind experience, uh, what's really meant by these things. Uh, being free from compulsive tendencies to judge is very different from exercising a wise discernment. Yeah? When somebody does something wrong, we need to be able to look at that and just say, that's wrong. That behaviour is wrong. That behaviour is completely inappropriate. It is not accorded with Dhamma. And to be able to feel confident in our opinion about that. So what's the difference between being confident in our opinion about something being wrong and being detached or being dispassionate? Well, this is where our investigation shows us the difference. Now, if we haven't found that place of stillness yet where we can let go of finding security in all our ideas about practice... We haven't had the experience of letting go of that, well, then there's going to be a struggle. So the thing is just to keep practicing. Keep practicing and letting go of these ideas, coming back to the body, even though it feels so tempting to follow our ideas about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. So tempting sometimes. We're not taking a position against our ideas. Rather, we're looking at the experience. What is the experience of holding on to ideas of good and bad, right and wrong, should and shouldn't? It's tedious, it's tiresome, it's not peaceful. So, the Buddha was talking about letting go of these things, not because we're going to not have any thoughts at all, but can we change the way that we think, the way we hold our opinions, the way we hold our judgments? And so, by way of experiment, we Tentatively we let go and even though we're in a, sitting there in meditation we're just dying to solve this quandary or to have an opinion about something terrible that I did or somebody else did or whatever. she say, no, come back. Come back to the body. Come back to the breath. Come back to the body posture. Come back to the sound of silence. And say, but if I don't think about it, it's going to disappear. Or if I don't think about it... I yeah. Well, we, we feel that tendency to be pulled, to be sucked into compulsive... Attachment. It's a compulsiveness, isn't it? It's being driven. You know, one piece of advice that I, I read in a book by Kenneth Roshi, when I was a very young monk, which which said that if you can't choose to act or not act, then your action is compulsive behavior. Well, that's very helpful. And likewise with thinking or speaking. If you can't choose to not speak or to speak, you know, if you're being driven to speak, well, then it's compulsive. Or thinking. If you can't choose to not think then your thinking is not contemplation, it's proliferation. And so by way of experiment, we turn away from the activity of the mind, having an opinion, no matter how needy of a solution uh, the predicament might be, just, I, sometimes we're caught up in it, we're not seen clearly. So by way of experiment, we turn attention away from it, come back to the feeling uh, of being drawn into it, and you say, no, come back to the body. And if we do this, what happens is, there is a shift in our involvement in the activity of the mind. The way that we engage is not compulsive. If we know how to be still, then we can choose to pick up the fantasy, to pick up the pondering. We can consciously ponder on something like feeling indignant, feeling disappointed, the feeling of disappointment is always disappointing. There's so a curious thing, a really curious thing, it always surprises me, whenever I feel disappointed, that I don't actually let go of it sooner. Because the feeling of disappointment, if you hold on to that feeling, you always become disappointed, which is horrible. It's a horrible feeling, becoming disappointed. And so why do we hang on to it? Because if you hang on to it, you're going to become disappointed. Well, there's only there can only be one reason why we hang on to it. And it's because we don't see what we're doing. We don't see it. We don't see that hanging on to disappointment makes us disappointed. It's like sticking your hand in the fire and expecting it to not get burned. It's just very unintelligent, and yet we keep doing it. And so, uh, if we learn to Establish ourselves with confidence in this way of turning away from this exercise of skillful restraint, turning away from the activity of the heart and mind, the feelings and sensations, come back to the meditation object until we've got this strength of stillness and clarity. And then, when we're ready, we can choose to go back and we can look and we see disappointment is just so. You know, disappointment is like that. That's what disappointment feels like. When you're hoping for something, you know, hoping for something to be a certain way, and then it happens another way, and then this feeling of disappointment comes up. So, of course we're disappointed. But we don't have to grasp the disappointment. We don't have to become disappointed. Mm. Well, from a worldly perspective, that's it. We don't become impassioned and indignant. We don't get enraged by the things that are happening in the world. And so for some people who are practicing, like, for instance, uh, sometimes it happens in relationships... One partner's practicing and the other one's not. And uh, there tends to be a, a separation happens because one partner says, you're just so boring now. You just don't want to go anywhere. You don't want to do anything. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And it can be a problem for people. And uh, so for the one who's not practicing, I'm not sure what the solution is. I'm probably the wrong person to ask. <laughs> I've been told that I'm actually not very good on marriage guidance counselling. But um, for the one who is practising, well, I think the appropriate thing to do, or for a parent who you know, whose children think you're boring, I think the appropriate thing to do is to contemplate this and look and see well, where, where is this coming from? You know, where is this perception that other people have of us coming from? Well, it's natural. It should be that way. You know, Socialising, I mean always talking and so it's, you know it's, it ends up in saying things you don't want to say and it's <laughs> energy extravagant and and so as you, the more you practice you, looking forward to being on your own is natural now this is not this is quite different from holding on to the idea that the Buddha said that solitary practice is good you know I've met a lot of neurotic people who who were simply not able to appreciate any sort of social contact or any sort of relationship and and think that that's a good dhamma practice. Well, that's that's something else altogether. But if, from a perspective of, of of awareness, we investigating the conditions of mind, you see how heedless conversation how it leads traces in the mind, stirs the heart up. That's just unattractive. And so, in a place like this, you, I know when people come here on retreat, the momentum of of conversation and chatting and so on, maybe on the first day or so it's a bit difficult to let go of. But nearly always, after a while, people settle and they just love the silence. It's just, it's so refreshing. It's like taking a bath, it's just to walk around with people who are not talking. Yeah. It's one of the few things in this life that you can get to look forward to, like living in monasteries. We have these silent practice weeks, I think seven weeks a year, scattered through the years of silent practice week. And, I was just thinking today, when's the next silent practice week? I'm not going to have to talk to anybody. Now that's not because I don't like people. Actually, everybody who lives here is very likeable. You're all likeable. There's no problem with not being likeable. But it's just that that there's a natural tendency towards enjoying, not engaging. Enjoying being quiet. But to understand that the world doesn't appreciate that. If somebody hasn't had the experience of stillness and the beauty and the joy of a quiet heart and mind, if somebody hasn't had that, they don't have the contrast. They don't see how, how irritating conversation and doing things and thinking and and being busy is. And so and so it's wise if one finds oneself in a relationship or in a family situation where where your relatives somebody else was saying how they're faced with a serious illness, one of their relatives was seriously ill and, and uh, this person had been practicing for many years, she was saying how it just didn't really upset her. She didn't feel disturbed by this sudden illness in the family. Um, she recognized and there was a sense of, of um, sympathy and compassion and care for those involved, but nothing within her got all stirred up. But then her relatives accused her of being cold-hearted, and insensitive. and so what do you do with that well it's difficult but I think if we prepare ourselves with understanding of why it's like this well then we're not so likely to react because it can be the case that we then get judgmental of people who are not uh, inclined towards quietness uh, which of course is where we get lost where we get attached to our quietness get attached to our opinion that quietness is better than activity. So, uh, yeah, and preparing ourselves with an understanding of this dynamic and see that it's natural to move towards dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude—these things the Buddha was, was highlighting—and that when people object to it, well, that we 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 don't react. We just say, "Oh well, yeah, it's understandable." I, yeah. But still people are still feeding on conflict or feeding on sense stimulus. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions that stir us up. It's exciting because they haven't seen there's an alternative to always being excited. You know, with that understanding, well then actually one can accord with it. You now sometimes it's also necessary to play the game. You know, if you're in a certain situation and People are wanting to have an opinion about something and you sit there absorbed in first jhana. Well, that's good for you. But if you come out of first jhana and you start getting irritated with, with people, well, maybe sometimes it's okay to just play the game a little bit and say a few things, and, and that's not being dishonest. And sometimes what's called for. And also, with regards to boredom, I think in our own case, uh, from a practice perspective to to be ready to uh, get interested in the reality of it. Now, if I was really teaching you properly, I would, I would be sitting here being completely uninteresting. I mean, there's nobody yawning so far, and I've been talking for 28 minutes, but this is an area of practice where I'm still working because I find that when people sit there yawning that I lose equanimity a little bit. You know, I do. I feel like I'm failing. And this is uh, part of my attachment and my conditioning that I still have to deal with. From a practice perspective, when we get interested in, in boredom. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, I, I, I sometimes advocate, school teachers, when they come here, I advocate that they intentionally let their children get bored. Because life can be very boring. And the idea that we have to always be stimulated and excited is really a very... Uh, unbalanced approach to life. In the monastery here, it's intentionally boring. We have the same breakfast every day. Our breakfast is nourishing, healthy medicine and could hardly be improved on. And yet when you have the same thing every day, every day, every day, it's very boring. It's just not interesting. It's not stimulating. Same chanting. Well, occasionally we might exchange the evening chanting for the Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta, you know, just for a treat. (laughs) Get exciting. (laughs) Same robes, I mean, everybody wears brown. Same hairstyle. It's just not interesting. But it's intentional. It's intentional. It's supposed to be that way. Because what it brings up is a recognition of an inner... Activity that would otherwise be tripping us up. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure we've already all seen this. Like you've been on retreats, and you, you says, there's nothing wrong. We're sitting there, nice company, everything's fine, food's provided, room's warm, and, uh, and yet the mind is wanting something, wanting. And what is it? What is it? That's interesting. What is it? What is this endlessly wanting? This this irritating ache that's there. That's worth seeing. Because if we don't see that, well then we're suckers to samsara. Yeah, which is being pulled along all the time by sense objects. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mental impression. You know, where's the next hit? And so in monastic training it's very boring so that we get to see this, this I want something interesting. And that's the core of boredom. Yeah, and that's why it's so interesting. Boredom is actually very interesting if you decide to look at it, people sometimes think that boredom is nothing happening. Now, if there was nothing happening, it would be very nice, wouldn't it? there's nothing happening, peaceful, nothing happening. There's something happening with boredom, isn't there? Boredom is not nothing happening. Boredom is a combination. There's all sorts of things going on inside there. Like, I want something to happen. I want something, maybe there's something happening, but it's not interesting to me. I want something interesting to happen. And then what's more characteristic of boredom actually is a very subtle form of irritation at nothing interesting happening. That's what boredom really is. one One of the main characteristics of boredom is a sense of irritation, resistance, ill will, negativity towards nothing interesting happening. Now when you get a handle on that, you're not bored anymore. just say you're irritated that's much better than being bored irritation is fascinating irritation is something you can really work with when we're lost in what we call boredom it's kind of like a swamp a stagnation and and it's dead and terrible so we just need to get interested in it and turn our investigation what's really going on there and you start seeing this is irritation nothing interesting happening or irritation at not getting what I want and there's desire and, and there's perception of me as a failure because if I, if I wasn't a failure I wouldn't be bored and all of this stuff going on fascinating but we've got to go beyond the surface level of things before we can actually start to see it but that's a personal journey and uh, not something that if somebody's still addicted to the worldly stimulus they're going to understand so it's not something that you want to uh, lecture people about. If uh, if you've got a spouse or or family who are complaining about you being bored, you know, sometimes you maybe need to, uh, you know, I, I encourage sometimes you know, just sit down and watch telly with your partner sometimes if if that's what they want to do right? because that's what they find interesting. Well, then sometimes if you're in a committed relationship, then that can be what's called for. However, in our own case, when when we start experiencing ourselves as being boring or or boredom in meditation, then instead of settling for the way this appears to be, see if we can get interested in the reality of it. What's really going on? Boredom is actually inherently interesting. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sous-titrage